Hello friends, and welcome to the second episode of Fantastic Fights, and where to find them. The podcast where a middle-aged idiot with time on my hands plays through the fighting fantasy books I loved as a child, in order. This episode, we're tackling The Citadel of Chaos, first released in 1983. After the runaway success of Warlock of Firetop Mountain, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston opted to start writing their game books solo. This was in order to have a consistent feel throughout each book and to make their editor's life an awful lot easier. Steve Jackson wrote Citadel of Chaos alone, with Ross Nicholson returning to provide more wonderfully characterful illustrations. The version I've got today has a rather basic cover by Emmanuel, but the version I remember playing as a child had a beautifully unsettling cover by Ian Miller, which I do urge you to check out. Citadel of Chaos features a more elaborate rule system which includes magic for the first time. As well as skill, stamina and luck, you also generate a magic score by rolling 2d6 and adding 6 to the result. This allows you to choose that number of spells from the list provided at the front of the book. We're making a few slight changes to the format this time, largely because I'm still determined not to make a map as I play because that will just take forever. In the first episode, I did come a little bit unstuck in the maze section of Warlock of Firetop Mountain, and actually I had to turn the recording off while I laboriously made my way through it. So while I'll still be running all the battles and so on according to the rules, I will this time be using my fingers as bookmarks, in certain sections at least, just like I did as a child. To preserve the sense of challenge, I've decided that if I opt to use my plump sausagey bookmarks, I'll be doing some kind of forfeit. Now, the forfeit for this episode will be press-ups, 20 press-ups for each time I opt to cheat, but I'm open to other more creative suggestions if you have them. Without any further ado, I present my playthrough of Steve Jackson's The Citadel of Chaos. Okay, so I have rolled up my character. I've done pretty well overall, I think. I have a skill of 12, which is maximum. That should stand me in good stead for most fights. I have a stamina of 21, that's also very good. And I have a bit more disappointing luck of 8. I rolled a magic of 14, pretty good. And I've opted to take 3 luck spells, 1 fire spell, 2 stamina spells, strength spell, shielding spell, levitation spell, fool's gold spell, illusion spell, ESP spell, two of those, and one weakness spell. Uh, I won't be explaining ahead of time how all of those work. We'll just, we'll cover them as and when they come up. So, uh, you don't get any provisions or anything this time out because you've got all this magic to help you, you being a uh, servant of a wizard. The lawful good folk of the Vale of Willow have lived for some eight years in awe and fear of the demi-sorcerer Balthus Dyer. In awe, since his power is truly awesome, and in fear ever since word leaked from his domain that his ambitious plan of conquest were to commence with the Vale of Willow itself. A faithful half-elf, sent on a spying mission to the Black Tower, came galloping back to the Vale three days ago with a frantic warning. From within the caverns of Cragon Rock, Balthus Dyer had recruited an army of Chaotics and was preparing them to attack the Vale within the week. The good King Salaman was a man of action. Messengers were sent throughout the Vale that day to prepare defences and to summon the menfolk to action. Riders had also been sent to the Great Forest of Yore to warn the half-elves that lived there and to make an appeal for allied forces. King Salaman was also a wise man. He knew well that the news would inevitably reach the Grand Wizard of Yore, a white sorcerer of great power who lived deep within the forest. The wizard was old and would not last to a battle of this magnitude, but he schooled a number of young magicians, and perhaps one of his students in the magic arts with courage and ambition would aid the king and his subjects. You are the star pupil of the Grand Wizard of Yore. He has been a difficult master, and your own impatience has often got the better of you. Perhaps a little too headstrong, you immediately left for Salomon's court. The king welcomed you enthusiastically and explained his plan. The battle could be avoided without bloodshed if Balthus were to be assassinated before his army could be amassed. The mission ahead of you is extremely perilous. Balthus Dyer is surrounded in his citadel by a multitude of appalling creatures. 
Although magic is your strongest weapon, there will be times when you must rely on your sword to survive. King Salomon has briefed you on the mission and warned you of the many dangers that lie ahead. One way through the citadel is best for you to take. If you discover it, you will be successful with a minimum of personal risks. It may take you several goes to find the easiest way through. You leave the Vale of Willow on the long hike to the Black Tower. At the foot of the hill of Crag and Rock, you can see its outline against the dark sky. Well, that's a much more involved beginning than we experienced in Warlock of Firetop Mountain. I just want to say that at the outset. So, I mean, another lengthy description, which is the very first paragraph. The sun sets. As twilight turns to darkness, you start your climb up the hill towards that forbidding shape silhouetted against the night sky. The citadel is less than an hour's climb. Some distance from its walls you stop to rest, a mistake, as it seems a fearful spectre from which there is no escape. The hairs on your neck prickle as you look towards it. But you are ashamed of your fears. With grim resolve, you march onwards, turning toward the main gate, where you know guards will be waiting. You consider your options. You have already thought about claiming to be a herbalist come to treat a guard with a fever. You could pose as a trader, or an artisan, perhaps a carpenter. You could even be a nomad seeking shelter for the night. As you ponder the possibilities and the yarns you will have to spin to the guards, you reach the main trail leading up to the gates. Two lanterns burn on either side of the portcullis. You hear muffled gruntings as you approach, and two misshapen creatures step forward. On the left stands an ugly creature with the head of a dog and the body of a great ape, flexing its powerful arms. Its opposite number is indeed its opposite, with the head of an ape and the body of a large dog. This latter guard approaches you on all fours. It stops some metres in front of you, raises itself on its hind legs, and addresses you. What story will you opt for? Now you see, I know that I've got a skill of 12 and a stamina of 21, so I'd kind of like to opt for the stabbing them both repeatedly story. But in actuality, I've got a choice of three. Will you pose as a herbalist? Will you claim to be a tradesman? Or will you ask shelter for the night? I'm going to pose as a herbalist because, yeah, there's a little bit more of a romance to it, I think. It's a proper fantasy archetype as a herbalist. The ape dog asks to see your herbs, the cunning swine. Luckily, you grabbed a few handfuls of weeds on your way up and you show them. Cocking its head to one side, the creature eyes you suspiciously. It asks you for the name of the guard you have come to treat, something you hadn't planned on. You quickly think of a name to bluff the creature with. So, Killtrog, Pincus, or Blag? I'm going to go with Blag, purely on the basis that to Blag something, in English idiom anyway, is to think on your feet and get away with uh, get away with something. So that seems to be, to me, the most appropriate one. I really hope this does not come unstuck. The creatures look at each other as if the name sounds familiar, but they can't quite place it. You quickly add that he's on the first floor watch. They shrug and eventually decide you may be telling the truth. The ape dog summons the gatekeeper, who appears to let you in. I was right. Blagging it was the correct way. That is kind of what I've been doing for the last 20, 30 years with my life, to be honest. So, yeah, I'm glad to see that the, it works just as well in a fantasy world. You walk forward into a spacious open courtyard surrounded by large walls. Various lights are burning and groups of figures are shuffling around in the darkness. In the centre of the courtyard is a large monument of some kind, perhaps a fountain. Looking across the yard, you can see what appears to be the main entrance to the tower. Will you creep around the wall towards the tower, stride boldly across the courtyard, or tiptoe through the shadows towards one of the groups? You know, it's been years, I think, since I enjoyed a really good tiptoe. So I am going to tiptoe through the shadows towards one of the groups. Cautiously, and keeping well out of sight, you creep through the darkness around the edge of the courtyard. There are two groups of creatures in front of you. To the right, you can see two human-like figures talking under a torch fastened to the wall. To the left, a group of four creatures of varying sizes and shapes are sitting around a fire eating. Will you approach the two by the torch, or the group around the fire? I instinctively feel that people sitting around a fire are friendlier than people sitting around a torch. Don't know why I think that, but I do. So I'm going to go and, yeah, I'm going to go to the group around the fire. A motley crew sits around the fire. 
A warty-faced orc is handing out scraggy chunks of half-cooked meat to the others. A snarling dwarf with green skin is complaining about the size of his piece, while two scruffy goblins, a man and a woman, are cuddling each other. They giggle and laugh, and every so often she slaps his ugly face, causing more merriment. As you approach, they stop and turn around to look at you with unwelcoming faces. They sneer at your neat appearance, and the female goblin whispers some comment to her mate. In front of the dwarf, you can see an open box. You can just make out a vial of liquid within it. Will you sit down with them around the fire, or ask whether you may join them? There is a, a lovely uh, illustration from Russ Nicholson. The uh, the goblins are particularly nice. They do look as though they've been caught in a, a moment of, uh, you know, quiet passion. The dwarf looks appropriately sulky, and the orc just looks kind of jaded, if I'm honest. Well, I think that it's better to seek forgiveness than ask permission. So I'm going to sit down with them around the fire. They are taken aback by your audacity. Rather than waiting for them to talk, you act aggressively and demand to know how to get into the citadel. They point to the main entrance, obviously a little bewildered by your confident manner, and whisper among themselves. The orc tells you that you will need the password, scimitar, to get in. You ask about the vial of liquid within the box, whereupon they get agitated. Will you press them for more information about the vial? Leave them and head for the two men you saw earlier, or press on towards the Black Tower? I, I, I would like more information about the vial. Vials have served me well in my adventuring career so far, and I see no reason why this should be any different. The creatures become suspicious as you press them for information. The dwarf springs to his feet, brandishing a wooden club, while the goblin and the orc grab swords and glare at you. The goblin's mistress shrieks and steps back several paces as the others advance towards you. You will have to fight them. You may use a magic spell. You can use either a levitation spell or an illusion spell. Or you may draw your sword and fight. I'm going to go for fighting them. Orcs, goblins and a dwarf, they don't seem to be that much to me. I feel like there's probably going to be a better use of the levitation spell and maybe the illusion spell as well. Like This is the first fight I've come to. It's probably not going to be that bad. Let's have a look. You draw your sword just in time as the dwarf is almost upon you. Fight each in turn. That's always very polite when they do that, especially in a wide open courtyard. So we have a dwarf, skill 5, stamina 6, no trouble. Goblin, uh, skill 6, stamina 4, even less trouble probably and an orc with skill 5, stamina 7. I am going to pause the recording now while I do all the dice rolling. I defeated them very, very handily. Not a scratch on me. In fact, I don't think there was even a chance of any of them hitting me. I rolled so well. So that was that was a pleasant opening fight. Afraid that the commotion may have attracted attention, you peer out into the darkness. Nothing seems to be happening. I mean, there was the goblin's mistress as well, who I don't think she ran away. Did we just murder her? I think we just murdered her off screen. Going through the pockets of the creatures, you find eight gold pieces, a copper-coloured key, and a jar of dark, creamy ointment. You may take any two of these with you. Yeah, I... why? Why can I only have two? I mean, I'll have the key and the ointment... I mean, I'm not going to turn down creamy ointment. I love me a creamy ointment. But I feel like I could probably fit eight gold pieces in my pockets as well. Never mind. Never mind. We're going to go for the key and the ointment. Turning to the vial of liquid, you can make out an inscription on the lid, written in runes. Your heart leaps as you realise this is a potion of magic, and it is very rare. Within this vial is enough liquid for two doses, and each has the effect of raising your magic score by one allowing you the energy to use one extra spell. You may take this potion with you and use after any spell. When you drink the potion, you need not cross that spell off your list. Remember, this potion will only work twice. Now you may carry on either towards the citadel or over to the two men talking by torchlight. I think we'll go over to the two men talking by torchlight. The two men are dirty and unkempt. As you approach, you can hear them arguing loudly about the price of a dagger. 
The taller of the two is obviously trying to sell the dagger to the other. He argues that the dagger is enchanted and worth more than the other is willing to pay for it. As you come closer, he grabs you by the arm and asks for your opinion on the price of the weapon. What will you say? Now, the taller of the two is wearing armour, and again, a very nice illustration by Ross Nicholson. And the smaller of the two is, I would say, throwing shapes on the dance floor. He's been posed slightly oddly, and if you've ever been to a goth club in the late 90s, early 2000s, you'll know exactly how he's dancing. There's a lot of arm waving going on, and he appears to be taking one step forward, and presumably in a minute he's going to take another step back. So... How much for the price of the weapon? Five, eight, or ten gold pieces? Well, the taller guy looks a bit sinister, more sinister. So I'm going to go with ten gold pieces. I'm going to try and keep on his good side. He agrees entirely. What a surprise. The artifact is extremely valuable. The shorter man explains that he just doesn't have that kind of money and wanders off into the darkness. The tall man offers the dagger to you at the bargain price of nine gold pieces. Ah, I see, I've, I've been hoist by my own petard. You may use a fool's gold spell to conjure up enough gold to buy it, or you may apologise and press onwards. I quite like the idea of buying the pretend magic knife with pretend magic money, so I'm going to do that. The dagger is indeed a work of art and was undoubtedly worth a fair price. The blade is made of shiny metal and the hilt is a peculiar green leather with inlaid stones. You read an inscription which tells you that this is an enchanted throwing dagger which never misses. I have done this man a great disservice. In a future combat, you may use the dagger to throw as an opponent. It will automatically inflict two stamina points of damage without the need to roll for attack strength but you may only use it once. Yeah, okay, maybe so 10 gold would be a, be a fair price for that. You put the dagger in your belt and set off towards the citadel. I should say that I used my uh, magic potion to mean that I didn't actually have to spend my fool's gold spell to uh, deceive that actually perfectly honest vendor of magic daggers. I feel a bit bad about that now, but hey-ho, it's a rough world. And if all goes to plan, he's going to be unemployed soon anyway, because I'm going to have murdered his boss. You'll have bigger things to worry about than uh, illusory money. You set off towards the citadel. Although the night air is calm, you hear a faint whistling, which rapidly gets louder and louder, until a gust of strong wind suddenly hits you with such force that you can barely move against it. You shield your eyes until the blast retreats slightly, and as you open them, you see a ghostly female face inside what appears to be a living whirlwind. She mouths words at you which you cannot make out, but seconds after she has finished talking, the message reaches you. She seems to find your appearance offensive and is challenging you with words of abuse. It's almost like she's met me. You grab your sword, but she laughs. Will you ignore her and continue? Talk to her or use your magic to see her off? Call me prickly, but when someone greets me with abuse, it doesn't make me particularly inclined to talk to them. I'm going to see if I can use magic to see her off. So what spell will I use? I could use either creature copy, which I don't have. I could use an illusion spell, which I do have, and a levitation spell, which I do have. I'm going to use the levitation spell and see if I can just fly out of range of her. Dismayed, she watches as you float into the air above her. She spins herself frantically, trying to suck you down, but you're out of reach. You taunt her with a smile and a wave and float over towards the Black Tower, setting yourself down outside the main entrance. I'll use my other magic potion to avoid having to spend that levitation as well. In front of you is a large wooden door firmly locked. You may either knock three times for the guard, or you may use a strength spell to try and open it. You have a strength spell, but I also managed to get the password out of the group around the campfire, so I am definitely going to be knocking three times for the guard. The door opens and a large, brutish creature steps out. It has a sharp horn in the middle of its forehead and its skin appears to be armour-plated. It's like a rhino man. You can see from the illustration it is very definitely a rhino man. We're doing quite well for sort of hybridised animals in this because there were two others on the uh, the gate. The guard grunts to ask you what you want and demands to know the password before letting you in. Do you know the password? If so, you can give it. If not, you'll have to bluff. Well, I know the password, so I'm going to give it. 
Is the password scimitar, Ganges, or Kraken? It's scimitar. I know it's scimitar. The creature grunts and opens the door to let you in. You are in a narrow hallway. This continues for several meters and enters. This continues for several meters and ends in a doorway. We're in familiar territory, people. Halfway along the passage, you can see an archway where some steps lead down. Will you go forwards to the door or creep down the steps? Much like tiptoeing, I don't think I've had a good creep for a while, so I'm going to creep down those steps. You follow the stairs downwards. The air is cool and stagnant. At the foot of the stairs is a door. Will you try the door or climb the stairs again and go up to the door on the ground floor? I like that we're able to double back. That is nice. I am, of course, going to try the door. If you listen to the first episode, you will know that I am an avid door trier. Note that I didn't listen at the door this time. In Warlock of Firetop Mountain, we did a lot of listening at doors. The door is locked. You may try to break it down by charging it with your shoulder, or you may cast a strength spell on yourself and try and wrench the door off its hinges. I have a strength spell, and I'm going to cast it. Hulk smash. Your super-powered hands grip the handle and tug. It comes off in your grip. That's a bit disappointing. You bunch up a fist and slam it into the centre of the door. The wood cracks and breaks, allowing you to break through into the room beyond. You now stand in a large, round room. It is lit by a single torch fixed in one wall. There is no furniture in the room, save for a rough wooden table and a chair in the centre. Hovering above the table, fast asleep, is a small man dressed in a green shirt and pantaloons. He cannot be more than a metre tall, and you cannot believe he's still asleep after your noisy entrance. You hear a creak, and turn to your right in time to see a small catapult fire a missile of some sort straight at you. It's going to hit you unless you use a shielding spell. Do you want to use this spell, or not? Do I have a shielding spell? I do have a shielding spell. Well... I might regret this later, but sleeping people with booby-trapped catapults sounds quite dangerous. And Like, small catapult. Is that small as in, sort of, such as a small child might use? Or is that small as in a small siege weapon? Either way, I'm going to use my shielding spell. You cast the spell just in time. The missile hits your magical shield and splatters against it, dribbling to the floor. You test the resulting mush to see what it was. You were nearly hit by a tomato. Well, that's a waste of a shielding spell. In the centre of the room, the sleeping figure is stirring. Cautiously, you approach the little man. As you get close, a single eye opens and looks straight into your face. A wide grin spreads between the creature's ears, and he disappears. Okay, I'm I'm going to preemptively apologise to anyone with any connection whatsoever to Ireland who is listening. You'll see why. <clears throat> Good morning, Tia, says a chirpy little voice behind you, and you swivel round to see him standing there, still grinning. I'm O'Seamus the Leprechaun, he chuckles, and holds out his hand to you. He seems friendly enough. Will you shake his hand and try to befriend him, or draw your sword? This feels like Hobson's choice to me, and I'm still sorry about the voice. If I shake his hand, he will play some kind of cruel trick on me. But given that he can teleport at will, I can't imagine that trying to attack him is going to be any better, so we'll go with the peaceful option. You grasp his hand and introduce yourself, and cry out as the nerves down your arm go numb. O'Seamus bursts out laughing. Lose one skill point as you are using your sword arm. You are becoming angry, as you would, but the little man continues to shake your hand and laugh. A laugh comes from behind you and you look round to see him floating in the air, grinning. You are still shaking his hand in front of you, or or are you? In fact, you now realise you are frantically shaking hands with a stuffed dummy, which is flopping around on the end of your arm. As you shake it, you throw it to the ground, but it's stuck to your hand. The situation is ludicrous. It certainly is, and you are becoming very angry. Just a little joke, says the leprechaun, who snaps his fingers. The dummy disappears. Now, what can I do for you? Will you ask him the way onwards? Or draw your sword? I will ask him the way onwards. I don't know why I'm so terrified of this diminutive magical spirit, but yeah, I I just feel as though if I try and resort to fisticuffs, it will go badly for me. Oh, I shouldn't go this way, 
says O'Shamus. These are not pleasant parts. That's getting worse, isn't it? These three doors are the only way onwards. Two of them are very dangerous, and the other is very smelly. On the opposite side of the room are three doors. One has a brass handle, one has a copper handle, and one has a bronze handle. Which will you choose? Or will you ask his advice? Well, I'll ask his advice, because I've no no way of determining which of brass, copper, bronze is smelly. Which would I take? He muses. Let's see. I would not take the one two doors to the left of the copper-handled one, nor the door to the right of the bronze-handled one. So which will you choose? The brass, the copper, or the bronze-handled one? This is a puzzle. Listener, I may be some time. Okay, I had to use my 50-50 and my phone a friend, but I'm going to go for the brass-handled one. You open the door and peer through into the darkness beyond. You walk a couple of paces forward, allowing your eyes to accustom themselves to the blackness. You close the door behind you, bidding the leprechaun farewell. I think we're all very grateful for you bidding farewell to my efforts at an Irish accent. A sudden, intense flash of light bursts out in front of you. You shield your eyes and then rub them, but you can't see. Panic hits you as you hear a low, growling noise. I've chosen the wrong door. Padded footsteps come closer and you cry out in pain as this unseen creature roars and embeds its sharp teeth in your leg. Will you cast a strength spell, cast a weakness spell, or draw your sword and slash out at the creature? I mean... I don't have a strength spell. I do have a weakness spell. I think I'm going to cast the weakness spell. I spent ages trying to puzzle that thing out. I got it completely wrong. You cast your weakness spell. Hopefully you wait for the creature's strength to fade, but its teeth, they still maul you. You are dismayed to find that its attack is becoming more ferocious. You cannot feel your leg now. The pain is intense. You feel faint and you lose consciousness as the jaws close on your throat. It could be all in for us. You awake and look around. As your memory returns, you're amazed to find that you can see. Your leg feels tender, but it's uninjured. You hear a small chuckle coming from above you and suddenly the whole thing makes sense. I'm cross. Listener, I am cross. Floating above you is O'Shamus, now laughing loudly. The whole thing has been one big practical joke. There's a fine line between Johnny Jape and psychological and physical torture, and I think O'Shamus has has vaulted that line. Um, possibly world record in crossing lines. You are enraged and leap to your feet, but as you glare at the funny little man rolling about in the air, in hysterics, you can't help but see the funny side. Yeah, I, mean, I thought I was going to die, that was hilarious. You chuckle, then giggle, then laugh loudly. For some time, the two of you roar with laughter until tears stream down your faces. When you are both able to control yourselves, you eventually settle down to chat. He's a pleasant little man. Before you leave, he says... Oh, God. Um, indeed, you are a good sport. Your way ahead is fraught with danger, but perhaps these will help you. With a wave of his hand, a sword and a plate appear on the table. The sword is a magical battle sword and will add one point to the dice roll when throwing for your attack strength. So, the skill I lost has now been returned. The plate is, in fact, a silver mirror of fine workmanship. You may take these things with you, but you will have to leave your old sword behind. Okay. I can leave the room either through the brass, copper, or bronze handled door. I don't remember which one I went through last time. I'm going to go through the copper one, just because I don't think I went through that one. So I've got a magical dagger, and I've got a magic sword. I mean, this is going all right, isn't it? I haven't got any money. Last adventure, I was loaded by this point. Still. The door opens and you enter a narrow corridor. You follow it for some time until you finally come to another door. This time a wide, carved door with the inscription Wine Cellar set into it. You try the handle and it opens. 
poking your head round the door, you can see rows and rows and rows of racks full of bottles, full of wine, perhaps? The room is dimly lit by several candles. Your opening the door has caused a little bell to ring, and a figure is limping towards you at one of the aisles. Will you draw your sword and prepare to defend yourself, or see what this fellow might have to say? So we've got a lovely illustration of the wine cellar, and a... Uh, incredibly skinny, black-skinned fellow with a long top knot limping out towards us. I must admit, he does not, to me, seem the most threatening of coves. I think I will see what he has to say. The black elf approaches you. He's skinny and ragged. He asks whether you are a guest or an adventurer. You tell him you are a guest, come down to sample the wine he keeps in his famous wine cellar. With a certain pride, he shows you the vintage bottles he keeps for his lord, the demi-sorcerer. What is a demi-sorcerer? Answers on a postcard. Some of the bottles, he claims, have magical powers. He offers to let you sample the wine. Bit of a mistake. I'm a raging alcoholic. Will you try a sample of the red wine, the white wine, or the rosé wine? Or will you decline his offer and make your way onwards? Rosé is wine for cowards, who can't choose between red and white. White wine is for yummy mummies and people who work in advertising. Red wine is the drink of champions, so I'm going to go for red wine. You taste the wine and you nod. The vintage is indeed excellent with a refreshing, fruity taste. You try a little more and you start to feel light-headed. You may add two stamina points and three luck points for finding such an excellent beverage. Well, I've lost neither stamina nor luck, so that's no help. But you thank the elf and press onwards. You see, in reality, I would not thank the elf and press onwards. I would stay in the wine cellar and I would drink all of his wine. But, obviously, in this adventure I'm made of sterner stuff, so onwards we press. At the far end of the wine cellar is a wooden door which you try. It opens out into a passageway which leads onwards for several metres. Somewhere along the passage you arrive at a four-way junction. You take a path to the north, which eventually leads you to a large wooden door. You can hear nothing by listening at the keyhole. Oh, now I'm listening at keyholes. Will you try and open the door slowly and quietly, or charge the door down? I don't have any more strength spells, so I'm going to try and open the door slowly and quietly. The handle turns, and you step into a dark room. You look round the room. It is lit only by your torch. Although a fairly large room, it has little furniture in it. A large boulder, sliced flat, resembles a table, and a smaller rock forms... A sort of stool behind it? In one corner, a pile of rocks are held together with mud. You cannot imagine their purpose. Although they support three wooden chests. Then you jump with fright as your torch lights up a large creature, seemingly made of rock itself, standing by the door. It is roughly human-shaped, although somewhat larger. Its eyes are staring straight at you, but you cannot be sure it is actually seeing you. Well, this is a curious turn-up. What will you do? Run for the other door? Attempt to speak with the creature? Move slowly towards the boxes in the corner? I love me a box. Boxes have been good. Um, last time we were quite the goody two-shoes, and this time I'm feeling a little bit more morally flexible, so I'm going to move slowly towards the boxes in the corner. At your first movement, the creature seems to break from its trance and steps towards you. Seeing this, you may either run for the door at the far end of the room or make for the boxes and risk taking on this silent giant. I, I'm obsessed with these boxes now. They have piqued my interest. We're going to make a run for the boxes. The golem advancing towards you is a slow-moving creature and you reach the boxes easily. You curse as you find they are all locked. As you struggle with the lock, the golem closes on you. You can draw your sword and fight the creature, cast a fire spell, cast a creature copy spell, or forget the boxes and race for the door. I have no creature copy spell. I have a fire spell, but if I know one thing about stone, it's that it's not massively flammable. If it was, my fireplace would be a death trap. So... Uh, and indeed everyone else's fireplace would be a death trap too. I don't know why I only specified my own. Uh, so ooh, I think I'm going to forget the boxes and race for the door. I do not fancy taking on a golem. You open the door and step forwards into a passageway which runs eastwards for several metres. 
and then ends at the foot of a staircase. You climb the stairs and eventually find yourself in a narrow passageway. A short distance ahead you can see an opening into a large, well-lit room. You press on forwards. Yeah, yeah we do. Getting away from the golem. The room you are in is some sort of grand dining hall. I mean, the illustration shows that it is not some sort of dining hall, it is just a dining hall. A long table, large enough to seat some 40 or 50 people, stands in the centre, edged with chairs. Various doors and passageways lead from the rooms, but you are particularly interested in two wide staircases, which lead upwards to either end of a balcony overlooking the hall. Paintings and suits of armour decorate the walls. The room is empty. Will you take the left-hand staircase up? The right-hand staircase up. Investigate the paintings or investigate the suits of armour. I consider myself an art lover. I'm not very knowledgeable, but I, I know what I like, like, you know, everyone else does. So I'm going to investigate the paintings and uh, hope that there's some undiscovered futurist or post-impressionist gem. The paintings are portraits of various lords and earls prominent in the kingdom of Crag and Rock. How imaginative. Behind the chair at the head of the table is a portrait of Balthus Dyer himself. He does indeed look a powerful adversary. Add one luck point for the warning of his appearance, but lose one stamina point for the feeling of fear he instills. If he's so scary that even looking at a picture of him can make me feel like physically unwell, like medically unwell, it doesn't really bode all that well for my chances of taking him down when the man himself is directly in front of me. You may now continue either up the left-hand staircase or the right-hand staircase. I mean, I feel instinctively that I'm going to go right, but I think sometimes it's nice to subvert that instinct, so I'm going to go left instead. The staircase creaks as your foot falls on it. You try to ascend as quietly as possible, but the old timbers groan under your weight. Suddenly, one of the stairs clicks as if to trigger a switch of some kind. To your surprise, all of the stairs flick downwards. You are now standing on a steep, smooth slope. Try as you might, you cannot keep your balance and you fall down the slope, tumbling head over heels. If you wish to use a levitation spell, you may fly up and out of danger to land on the balcony above. Otherwise, you just have to go with it. Well, I still have a levitation spell left, so let's do it. Thanks, Magical Potion, for enabling me to cast a bonus levitation spell. I am very much enjoying getting to use magic. Along the balcony are three doors. Will you try the door to the left, the door in the centre, or the door to the right? Well, left didn't work out so well for us last time, so we will go to the right. The door opens and you enter the room. It is quite large and decorated with various carvings. It looks something like an artist's studio and a number of unfinished stone statues line one wall. In the centre of the room, a large stone gargoyle is standing on a stone-carved box. As you enter the room, the creature creaks as its head turns towards you. Slowly, it comes alive, hopping down off its pedestal. It blocks your way through the room to a door on the far side. What will you do? Draw your sword and advance. Prepare to cast a spell. Look through your bag for something to use. Nip out of this room and try the middle door. Previously, I ran away from a big stone monster. This time, I feel like it's not as big. Um, and the gargoyle's a, a bit of a design classic, isn't it? So I, I quite fancy taking this fella on. Or this lady. It's not, not clear which. So I will draw my sword and I will advance. You advance and take a swing at the creature. With a clang, your sword bounces off its stone body. Realising that you cannot harm it with your weapon, which, to be fair, I probably should have spotted, you may either cast a spell or use something from your backpack. I will try and cast a spell, I think. I can either cast a fire spell, which I have, a weakness spell, uh, which I don't have, and a creature copy spell, which I don't have. So fire spell is literally the only one. Hmm. Okay, well, fire spell it is. You create a large fireball in your hands and throw it at the creature. It has no effect, which, let's be honest, I saw coming. The gargoyle swipes at you and the blow knocks you off your feet. Lose two stamina points. You'd better avoid this beast by leaving the room and trying the middle door on the balcony. Note that I can't try the left-hand door, which leads me to believe that might have been the sensible one to go in. 
Too late now. You listen at the door and you can hear squeaky voices laughing and squabbling. You try the handle and the door opens. Inside is a brightly coloured room. A few small beds are in one corner, strewn about the floor as small mannequins of various brutish creatures. Along the right-hand wall is a large box, and just beyond the box is a door. In the centre of the room, and looking up at you quizzically, are three small creatures. They are human-like, but have green skin, pointed ears and slit-like eyes. What will your approach be? Draw your sword and prepare to fight them. Look into your pack for something to offer them, or walk confidently across the room to the far door. I don't think I have anything to realistically offer them other than some ointment. A magic dagger. Kids love knives. Um, or a key. I'm looking in my pack for something to offer them, I think. Maybe they'd like a knife. Will you offer them a pocket myriad? Sounds intriguing. A spider in a jar? Or a handful of small berries, I have none of the above. So I can either draw my sword or head for the far door. I don't really want to kill these adorable moppets. And the Ross Nichols illustration, they are genuinely quite sweet. But I do quite want to have a look in that box. Decisions, decisions, I will draw my sword. The little creatures squeal and huddle together as you approach. You run them all through with your sword, but they put up no resistance. You feel a little wary at such an easy battle and make for the door at the far end of the room. Ooh. Oh dear. Oh dear. Oh dear, oh dear. Oh well. Onwards. Let us never speak of this again. You leave the room and head down a short corridor. Some metres down you find yourself at the foot of a staircase. This is a spiral staircase which leads right up into the Citadel Tower. You climb the stairs cautiously and eventually arrive on a small landing with two doorways in front of you. Will you take the left-hand door or the right-hand door? Right, last time, I think left was right. Feels like this time maybe right will be by... I mean, that's just maths, isn't it? To be fair, I didn't actually check the left-hand door. I'm going to go left. I'm going to go left. It's got to be right sooner or later. The door opens, allowing you into a large circular room. You scratch your head quizzically. In the centre of the room, you can see a small island surrounded by a wide trench, on which stands a chest locked with metal fastenings. The trench is too wide to jump and is very deep. Inside the door is a length of rope. A door leads from the room opposite the door you came through. Will you ignore the box and walk round the trench to the other door, cast a strength spell and leap across the trench, or pick up the rope and formulate a plan? Okay, that last one... That last one really feels like a trap to me. I mean, I could lasso the box, I guess, and try and pull it warily. And making my first use of my my big sausagey fingers as bookmarks, I am going to pick up the rope and formulate a plan. An idea strikes you. You tie the rope into a loop with a slip knot at the end. Whirling the rope around your head, you try and snare the chest. After several throws, your loop goes over the chest. Yes, it does. And the slip knot tightens around it. You pull, and the chest shifts. You pull once, and it falls over the edge and down into the trench. But to your dismay, the weight of the box is enormous, and it pulls you right over with it. Do you have a levitation spell? I do not. Hmm. You fall into the trench. Frantically, you grasp at the edge as you tumble over, but without success. Head over heels, you tumble down into the pit, and your last memory is your final crash as you hit the ground below, which kills you instantly. You have failed in your mission. Well, fortunately, I invoked the sausagey bookmark, so I am going to go back in time, and I am going to ignore the box and walk round the trench to the other side. So we're going to pretend none of that happened. And I'm going to do 20 press-ups. And I'm back. I have have done my press-ups, so apologies if my breathing is a little bit more ragged than usual. So, uh, we're back in the room with the chest on the island that's, that's a filthy trap. And this time we're going to ignore the box and walk round the trench to the other door. You leave through the door and find yourself at the foot of another spiral staircase. 
leading up into the Black Tower. Climbing the stairs, you eventually come to a landing, where a single door is the only way onwards. You try the door. It opens, slowly. You feel yourself sucked into the room, as if by magic your torch flickers and dies. The room is pitch black. From nowhere, yet everywhere, comes a mocking laugh which fills the room. Foolish adventurer, says another voice, which changes its tone from high to low as it speaks. Okay, so it wasn't foolish adventurer, it was foolish adventurer. I'm not going to do the voice. Welcome to the home of the Ganges. Unfortunately, it will be the last room you will ever see. Ah, but of course, you cannot see, can you? But we can see you, can't we, brothers? Suddenly, a ghostly white, luminous face flies towards you. You recoil in horror, throwing yourself on the ground and begin to feel very frightened. Lose one skill, two stamina and one luck. What can you do here? Create a fire spell, try an illusion spell, or feel in your backpack for an artefact. Or, if you want, you can draw your sword. This is such a memorable encounter that even years later I can remember that drawing your sword will do nothing. So I think it's rummaging in the backpack time. I should say that there is a very sinister ghostly white face drawn by Russ Nicholson coming out of the blackness, which I remember put the wind up me something chronic as a child. So let's have a rummage, see if I can dimly recall. What will you pull from your backpack? A spider in a jar? A charmed amulet? Or a jar of ointment? Well, I only have one of those, which is a jar of ointment, which I was planning to keep for personal use, but as it happens, I'm going to give it to the Ganges. What is that? demands a ghostly voice. You bargain with them. You will allow them to take the ointment if they would allow you through the room. You have no business with them. A ghostly hand appears from nowhere and tries to snatch the jar from your hand, but you whip it away quickly. It is indeed the ointment of healing, you hear one of the voices say quietly. We accept your offer says a voice. Leave the jar where you are and leave through this door. A door in the far corner glows softly. You do not trust them, pretty wise, and take the jar with you to the door. As you open the door, you fling the jar across the room and leave quickly. You close the door behind you and find yourself at the foot of yet another staircase spiralling up into the tower. Climbing the stairs, you arrive at another balcony where a single door is the only way onwards. Trying the door, it opens easily. But as you push the door, a loud hissing noise comes from within. You step inside and turn cold. A huge, six-headed hydra snakes towards you over the bodies of its previous victims. Its six serpent-like heads dart at you with vicious, pointed teeth. You cower into the corner. What will you do? Draw your sword. Use a creature copy spell. I'm beginning to think I really should have taken like a whole bunch of creature copy spells. Like I've not used ESP at all or illusion. I've still got a fool's gold because <laughs> I foolishly spent some of my magic potion on it. Okay. Well, um, I could use something from my backpack, but I don't think I've got anything that's that's realistically going to help. Which is a shame. I mean, hydras don't care for keys or mirrors, do they? Oh well, uh, stabby time. You begin your fight with the creature. Your first blow is lucky and severs one of its six heads. The other five strike at you and, to your horror, two more heads grow where the other one died. One of the heads bites deep into your arm, lose four stamina points. Taking me down to a stamina of 12. Your sword is obviously going to be of little use. Will you use a creature copy spell or something from your backpack? Well, let's open the backpack and hope for the best. You may pull from your backpack any one of the following if you have collected them. A silver mirror, a pocket fleece, or a pocket myriad. Well, 
I have a silver mirror, so we're going to go with that. You hold up the mirror. This seems to have little effect on the creature, which continues its advance. One head springs forwards and knocks the mirror from your hands, smashing it on the floor. You try and decide what to do next. While you are deliberating your next move, the Hydra advances. Two of its heads dart out and bite you, one on your arm, the other in your neck. Its sharp teeth pierce your skin and bite deep. All is lost. You have failed in your mission. I'd have to go back an awful long way to work out how to find the various objects I needed to get past the Hydra. So I think there, sadly, this attempt at the Citadel of Chaos will end there. Well, that was Citadel of Chaos. I'm disappointed not to have made it to Balthus Dyer and found out what a demi-sorcerer is supposed to be, but I had a really, really good time with it regardless. Like Citadel of Chaos is is hard. There's no two ways about it. There's various parts where you will be royally screwed if you don't have the right item or, like me, you make the wrong choice. Arguably, it's too arbitrary in the way you have to go through it to beat the game book, but a certain amount of arbitrary unfairness is... It's more or less a necessary feature of the format. Sooner or later, you're always going to come to a choice between two similar-looking options, and one of them's going to be right, and the other's going to be wrong. And that's just the way it is. And looking back, I took a far-from-optimal route through the book. I made a whole bunch of mistakes that gradually compounded themselves as I worked my way through. Now, my memory of the book, the encounter with the Ganges was the most important thing in the game, and I was I was very mentally focused on trying to make sure I had something to offer them, to the extent that I actually completely forgot about the existence of the Hydra, which follows immediately after the Ganges, and also requires specific tools to get past. So even if I'd made it beyond the Hydra, there's a door with a combination lock which blocks access to Balthus Dyer himself. So... I clearly made some poor decisions along the way, but that's fine. That's much my, that's much like my real life. It does mean that we didn't get to experience the joy of beating the game, but we got a, got a decent way through it, the penultimate encounter. And I still felt I'd had a pretty heroic adventure in the end. The first death I took was pure, unbridled, unfiltered stupidity. What can I say? I am a sucker for a chest, even a chest that is very obviously a trap designed to lure idiots to their doom. I, In all honesty, if I hadn't introduced the sausage bookmark rule, I doubt if I'd have tried to snag it. But one of the reasons why I wanted to play a little bit more loosely and use the sausage finger bookmark was to allow us to perhaps come across the odd silly death here and there without having to end the playthrough there and then. Knowing that I'm recording one playthrough might have a tendency to make me play very conservative if I don't have any option to go back and redo things. Um, So, yeah, let me know what you think. I feel like I've got a decent balance in this episode, but if you'd rather I stayed strictly honest, do let me know, and I will do that, probably. It's a tough fighting fantasy book to review in many ways. I mean, I absolutely love it. This is one of my, if not my all-time favourite one. But I'm not blind to its problems. Uh, I played through it about five years ago, and I did it properly, mapping the whole thing and working out patiently where to find the various things that I needed to win. I still think it's got one of the best climaxes anywhere in the fighting fantasy series when you finally get it right. You've got three encounters. They're all quite difficult to get through. And then you get to beat the bad guy and feel like a proper hero. does feel, though, like there's maybe one too many big final obstacles before you get to Balthus Dyer. Particularly because they they all come one after the other very quickly. Like, I felt a little deflated, if I'm honest, to get through the Ganges and be rewarded with a Hydra, which I knew as soon as I saw it, I thought, I do not have anything I can beat you with. And had I made it past the Hydra, 
I'd have been presented with the only thing more exciting than a mythical beast, a locked door which I don't have the code to open. And that would have been, a, I think, a serious letdown. And that's pretty much what happened when we did the Warlock of Firetop Mountain, although they're the, the, the boxes, at least after the confrontation with the Warlock. So there's that. I will say that the final confrontation with Bolthus Dial, which we didn't get to cover, is a wonderful thing, and it's a real shame not to have featured it. You get to fight him with magic, with your wits, and with your sword if everything else goes against you. It highlights one of the best features of the book design, which you can get through the entire thing without having to fight a single creature with dice if you make perfectly optimal choices. Um, there's multiple different ways to beat Bolthus Dial, and he throws lots of different things at you and it's just a beautifully structured fight. Now a lot of fighting fantasy books would claim that even the weakest character could make it through but this is the only one where I think that's definitely the case. Skill, stamina and luck they'll all help but the key stat is magic and that adds a lot of new ways to defeat the various denizens of the citadel but even if you've got the lowest possible score for magic so long as you choose exactly the right spells you can still you can still get through. And that magic adds so many new ways to defeat the various denizens of the Citadel. So you can even use magic to get past the Hydra if you haven't found the Golden Fleece. But that does rely on you having three spare creature copy spells to hand, which I think on a first playthrough is certainly unlikely. And having these multiple ways to get past a lot of the obstacles, it just feels delightful. It doesn't feel as though you're being treated as an idiot. It feels as though you're being treated as someone who who could come up with lots of different solutions. Now... It's not without a cost, because it means there's a lot more sections to each encounter. With a arbitrary 400 section limit, that means that there are necessarily less encounters, because each of them is contains more branching paths. And that means the citadel feels very small. I mean, it's a courtyard and a tower. And if we don't go down into the basement, you know, it's a very small place. Now, that's not all bad. I actually quite like the claustrophobic feel, but it does limit the scope and the epicness of the adventure. I can see why it didn't become a regular feature, although Steve Jackson would come back to magic again in his spin-off sorcery books. There may not be as many encounters, but one area where Citadel of Chaos really shines is the oddness of some of those encounters. Like Warlock of Firetop Mountain relied for the most part on well-worn Dungeons and Dragons staples, and also old men for some reason. Here we get to see Steve Jackson get a lot more experimental. The hideous and spectral Ganges we've already touched on, they're fantastically weird and a terrifying encounter, but that's contrasted with some more playful creatures. I was really sorry we didn't get to see the wheelies, the little round creatures that look like wheels of cheese armed with throwing knives, which they throw very quickly with their four arms as they cartwheel towards you. That's great. There's the ape dog and the dog ape at the start of the adventure, which are exactly the sort of crossbreeding nonsense you might expect to guard a lunatic sorcerer's lair. I really like the wine cellar encounter with the depressed elf sommelier. Um, That's just a really odd little encounter. I love it. And I also think the living whirlwind woman towards the start of the adventure, that's great as well. There's a lot of those images that have that very British take on fantasy, which deliberately contrasts the terrifying and the grotesque with the silly and the slightly sad. The downside of this more darkly whimsical approach is that the reader can't rely quite so much on behaving like a traditional adventurer. The surreal quality of some of the encounters makes it harder to judge what the correct approach might be. So when I met the baby monsters, my instinct was, it's a trap. So I murdered them all, which ended up making me feel bad. There just weren't quite the same contextual clues to help me divine the best outcome as there were in the first book. Or if there were there, then I'm too much of an idiot to have spotted them. Like, it could just be me. That is that is a distinct possibility. But I feel like the the leprechaun is a really good example of this. Like, that is quite a frustrating experience because it does just seem so arbitrary and random. And it's made all the more so by being told by the text that I'm seeing the funny side of his practical jokes when actually I would have liked to have had the option to kill him with a brick. Uh, and there are, there are more areas that feel a little bit out there 
and therefore a little bit harder to decode into a into a puzzle that you can solve. Now, personally, I'm happy enough to trade some internal logic for a fun and memorable monster or character. And as I've said before, the somewhat random nature of the game books, it's a feature you just have to accept. Um, Digital Chaos, by virtue of being quite surreal and macabre and out there, also feels better written than what came before. And that's definitely a good thing. All in all, I had a lovely time with the Citadel of Chaos. It feels like a step up in almost every way. We've moved beyond stabbing orcs with swords and into something a little stranger which has more of its own identity. I hope very much you've enjoyed this adventure and that you'll consider joining me next time when we take an arboreal trip to the Forest of Doom. Once again, I can't promise exactly when that will be because life is weird now. But regardless, thanks very much for listening and take care.